0: The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. All right, let's open our Bibles now. If you want to grab a chair Bible in front of you or maybe you brought your own or you want to open your Bible app, however this works for you. We're going to be in Psalm 51 this morning. Psalm 51 is on page 474 in the chair Bibles. Just by the way, if you don't have a Bible of your own, we would love to give you one of these, so please feel free to take one. But again, this morning we're in Psalm 51, page 474. Psalm 51, 474. Psalm 51 begins like this, to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went into him, or went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. on your altar. Let's pray one more time as we come before God's word. Our God, um, our topic isn't that easy, repentance, confession, um, but it's so needed and it's so healing. And so Lord, I just pray that as we walk through this text, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would be here with us and that you would do in our minds and our hearts what I could never do, that you could show us the heart of this passage and put it in us and move in us the way you moved in David. Transform us, change us, restore us, God, as we learn how to confess our sin. And we pray it in Jesus' name who made it possible for us. Amen. Have you ever had somebody give you a lame apology? Like, really lame. Um, They did something nasty to you, they said something out, it was all seen, and then you, you got sort of an apology... But it was really lame. How do they go? They go like this. It's kind of like, I'm really sorry I got caught. And you're like, oh. Um, Or, I'm really sorry you feel hurt that I did this evil thing. Wow, thank you so much. Um, Or, I'm really sorry, but now let me give you 83 reasons why I had no choice but to do it. I felt this way. That happened. This reason. so here's all the all the reasons why. You know, uh, I'm sorry I did it, but what could I have done? And every time you hear one of those, you're like lame, <laughs> okay? Or or maybe they'll drop the hey, I'm not perfect on you. You ever had that dropped on you? That's like somebody telling you they don't have gills. It's like a fish, you know. And you're like, you don't have gills. You know, you're not perfect. We'll just come clean, right? Nobody in this room has ever thought that you are perfect. <laughs> Have you ever thought that I was perfect? No, no, no. Lame, lame apologies. We've all been given lame apologies. And when you, when you get a lame apology, I feel like there's one thing we know for certain. Nothing's going to change. Nothing's going to change. But here's my next question as I was thinking about this passage. I know we've been given lame apologies. Have you ever given God a lame Apology. You know, in your relationship with him, hey, I'm, I'm sorry I got caught. Or, um, I'm sorry you're hurt by this, God. I'm sorry your commands are so unrealistic. Why would you ever expect anybody to keep them? Or, God, you know, remember Adam when he got caught in the garden? Remember what he said? It was a woman you gave me, right? God, you've set up my life to where I had no choice but to disobey you. So whose fault is this really? You're the one who put these people in my life. You're the one who made it hard. I guess I'm sorry, Lord. And I wonder if God goes lame, right? And maybe we wonder why we don't change like we could or like we even want to. We don't change because we don't know how to confess and to repent. So as we've said, we're going through some psalms. I like to call psalms God hosting a community event for our heart. He's inviting you in with every psalm. It's a God-inspired prayer, right? Come to me like this when you face situations like that. Come to me in this way. And amazingly today, we get to see how God wants us and invites us to confess and repent when we sin. And it is beautiful. I want to say that again. It is beautiful. I know we've received lame apologies, but have you ever received a real and true heartfelt confession where they ask for forgiveness and you see there's gonna be change? Have you ever heard that? Have you ever seen that? It's beautiful. It is beautiful. So we wanna learn how to repent today from this passage. You know, sometimes people say the word repent and it feels like a mace from the Middle Ages, right? Big metal ball with spikes on it swinging toward your head. Repent! And you're just, I don't want out of the way on that one. But as we see from this passage, repent to bring you to true restoration and healing and reconciliation. It's beautiful. It restores us. Repentance is meant to bring us to that place of beautiful change. And so in Psalm 51, we get to see like an it. An example of how this is done. We get to see how this is done. It's it's a blueprint for us. It's an invitation to confess and repent in this way. Uh, Amazingly, we get to see it um, in a man who wrecked not only his life, but the lives of others. We get to see his example of what you almost want to call surgical repentance. He cuts himself deep in this repentance. And why do you need to cut deep? So he can get it out, right? He can get the tumor out. And then because it cuts so effectively, he's restored and changed, and it's, it's beautiful. So we want to walk through this together. I'm going to take this in kind of five scenes or episodes. First of all, we want to understand the setting, because it really helps us to see who's writing, what happened in his life. Second, we want to hear his humble plea that he makes to God. Third, there's an honest confession, We want to learn from him in that way. Fourth, there's healing and restoration that comes from that humble plea and from that honest confession. And then I want to do two different applications. So the setting, humble plea, honest confession, healing and restoration, and then two applications. Number one, the setting. Who wrote it? Did you see in the little editorial note, beginning of the psalm, who wrote this thing? David wrote it. Who was he? He is the anointed king of Israel, and really he's the best king Israel ever had. He was called uh, a man after God's own heart at one point. He's the first draft of what the people need in a king who loves God and who follows God, who honors God. Not only that, he was promised that one of his descendants would reign forever, right? Renew the world. That's who's writing this. So are you saying even anointed kings sometimes need to repent? If you want to see the rest of the story, it's the psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Gone in is a Hebrew word, Bathsheba, and there was a baby, if you know what I'm saying. So it reminds us of the story. Here he is a king. He's supposed to be off to to war. From his balcony, he sees a woman bathing, and he wants her. And he says to his servants, go get her for me. And they say to him, that is the wife of Uriah. Uriah is David's friend, a loyal supporter. That is your friend's wife. And David says, I still want her. And he gets her pregnant. Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, is off at war. And so David, who used to be this soft-hearted hymn writer now becomes this hardened steamer. So hard, so brutal, he brings Uriah home and wines and dines him and say, hey, you know, go hang out with your wife so we can hide who the baby belongs to. Uriah won't do it. Uriah is more honorable than David. He sleeps on the sidewalk because his brothers are out on the battlefield. And so David says, well, I have no way out. You can, th- you can hear him thinking, can't you? We can't have this scandal get out. What would it do to the nation? And so he tells this general, hey, when you get back into battle, let Uriah get in a dangerous place, then leave him. So Joab does it. And not only is Uriah killed, many other Israelite soldiers are killed. And when David hears the news, he gives one of the nastiest lines in the Bible. Said, hey, it's okay. The sword devours now one and now another. He might have died in battle anyway. That's when the prophet Nathan comes over with a sermon. He gives a little parable. The prophet Nathan says, hey, once uh, there, there's this poor man in the nation, King David, because the king, he's in charge of justice. There's this poor man, he had this little lamb. I know it's not that big of a deal, but this little lamb was like a pet to him. He fed it out of his hand. Uh, It it would nap with him. It's like a daughter. This thing was precious to him. This rich guy comes through, King David. This rich guy with all this wealth and all these herds of his own, he comes through and he he stole, he took the lamb from that poor man and he ate it for dinner. What are we going to do? And David rises up and actually says... That man deserves to die. It says in the text that David's anger was greatly kindled. He deserves to die. And then there's Nathan's four famous words. Can you hear him? You are the man. And David's crushed. He's crushed. And he admits it. I've sinned. Isn't it amazing in this prescript in the psalm? David wrote this, and who did he send it off to? The choir master. I mean, you hear you have, anybody have skeletons in your closet where you're like, I would rather not that knock it out? Okay? <laughs> yeah, you do. Okay? Me too. I don't want it out. I'm not going to journal about it, make it into a newsletter, and pass it out to you. Okay, That's not going to happen. David Sin was out, and his journal entry got edited and turned into a hymn for everybody to sing. What does that mean? What does it mean? There's several things to learn here already. Number one, David shows us it is scary... Easy, scary easy to recognize and hate the little sins of others while rationalizing and excusing our own massive rebellion. It is scary easy to hate the sins of others while rationalizing our own massive rebellion. The second thing we learn, everybody needs a Nathan Everybody needs a Nathan. How did David get into Psalm 51 where he could confess and repent and be restored and be healed? It was somebody coming up to him and saying, "You are the man. Do you think Nathan enjoyed that process? You can get terrified of him to go into the throne room. <laughs> I mean, if David's willing to, to wipe out Uriah, why not Nathan? But still he goes. In love for his king, because he does, he loves his king, and he tells him the truth. If you don't have a Nathan in your life, it might never take you to repentance, which might never get you to restoration. We need a Nathan. We need to be him sometimes. But it also shows us that as God puts this in here, it shows us that if David, the anointed king, can sin and needs to repent like this, then guess what that means for us? We need it too. It's to the choirmaster. It's for us to sing. It's for us to fill in our story. And the beauty of it is most of us probably haven't murdered lots. But so then we get to hear, well, you know what? If God accepted him, then what does it mean? God would accept me. He would accept me as I repent like this. So let's walk along with it. Let's walk along. As we see, everyone needs to repent, and everyone is invited to repent and be restored. It starts with a humble plea. Look at verses 1 to 3. What's he want? Verse 1. Have what? Have mercy on me. According to what? He doesn't say, because I deserve it. He doesn't say, hey, because before that I was good for a long time. He doesn't say, hey, I've done lots of cool things for you, God. What's he leaning on here? What's he hoping for in God? He doesn't push his own resume. Look, the way he sees himself, verse 2 wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. How do you see yourself if you're asking someone to wash you? I'm dirty. I'm dirty. And how often do you ask someone else to wash you? Okay? No thanks. (laughs) I will wash myself. Can I get an amen? amen? Except for when you sin. Because you cannot wash this dirt off. You cannot. You can't atone for it or make it better on your own. You can't get it out. And some of you, your souls know this. there's sin that you've experienced or that you've done and it's still it echoes in on you and you just want to be like I want to be clean and you're like I can't clean it and David is saying that I can't clean it I need mercy oh God and the only thing I have to plead to from you is your steadfast love that's it that's my only hope that you love me this word, Hasid, this Hebrew word, it's like the core word all throughout the Old Testament. It's God's covenant promise, love to his people no matter what. It's his covenant promised love to his people no matter what. And so David says, my only hope, God, it's not that I'm good because I'm not, I'm dirty. My only hope is your mercy, and I believe you could give me mercy because you're a gracious God. But what's amazing here is you don't see any entitlement you don't see any deal-making. You just see, God, I need you. What does real confession begin with? An, a, a humble plea for mercy from a God who is gracious. A humble plea for mercy. The next thing you see is the honest confession. The honest confession I want to spend a little time here on verse 4. Look what David says next in verse 4. Against who? Against you, you only, have I sinned. And let's just pause there for a moment. How many of you are thinking, I heard the story you told me. It sounded like David sinned against thousands of people. Okay, Thousands of people, How can he possibly say against you, you only, have I sinned? How can he say that? What does he mean when he says that? I'm going to take you back to a few moments in Nathan's sermon to David. 2 Samuel 12, 9. Look what Nathan said to David. Why have you... What's next? despise the word of the Lord. Who is it that said, um, don't take your neighbor's wife? Who is it that said, thou shalt not commit adultery, much less steal, murder, etc.? The Lord. And so before David sinned against Uriah or Bathsheba, who was he already sinning against? Specifically, God's word. Do you see this? This is big. It's against God's word. You've despised the word of the Lord. You didn't like his view on what was to be done or not. And so you said, David in his, in his heart said, about God's word. Mm-hmm, too restrictive. Too difficult. Not for me. Then in verse 10, Nathan says to David, this is the voice of God through Nathan, verse 10, you have despised what? Me. You've despised me. Do you you see how the the God of the Bible takes things? When we despise his word, it's because in our hearts we despise him. 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 Verse 13, David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, by this deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord. Do you you see what David is saying? When I sinned against Uriah by lusting after his wife and stealing her, when I committed adultery... Before David committed adultery with Bathsheba, he committed adultery against God. Before he put his heart in, I must have that, he put his heart on, you're not enough. I don't want you or your ways. Any sin against others is a sin against God's word which is a sin against God. And David is admitting it. He's seeing all the way down into the nature of his sin. When he sinned, he wasn't just, he was abandoning the God who'd been so faithful to him. Have you ever had in your heart, God, I love you, but it's okay for me to mistreat this person? You ever done that? You have a reason to mistreat that person? But God, I love you. I've done that. Can you you see what David is probing at in his own heart? You know, he went to to temple later after that. God, I love you, but it's okay for me to mistreat this person. And God is saying to David, what, can, can you do this? Can you say, God, I love you, and then mistreat this person? No, you can't. To sin against that person is to sin against God. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. How do we know what's evil, you guys? How do we know ultimately? Uh, I, I saw, I think it was on Instagram, this horrible video of a male zebra trying to drown a foal in a pond in Africa. I mean, you just. And the people watching this horrible video are like, oh! You know this is terrible, and the guy who posted was like, "Hey, everybody, don't freak out. It's just Darwinism, survival of the fittest." It did ring in my, you know, my pastor brain. We watch that and we feel like, "What do we need to do? We need to go be Nathan to that zebra, right? You know, stop. Is it wrong for the zebra to do that? He's a zebra." Is it okay for you and I to do that? No, and you all know that. Why? Because human beings are made in the image of God. And God has said, thou shalt not treat other humans in that way. Without God being against you and you only, the authority on this, there is no sin against other people. It is everyone for himself the strongest win. It's with God as the ultimate, as the foundation. When he is everything, that's what makes injustice a sin against someone else. And so for David to bring the surgical knife into his heart, here he's saying, when I did all this, no matter how it felt, no matter all my rationalizations, I realize now I denied you. And I have no excuse. Have you ever been a little hard on yourself when you're praying or confessing and not allowed an excuse? No excuse. I heard one pastor give the illustration of, uh, you know, say, say you were in the German military around World War II. And they assigned you to a gas camp. And they said, put the people in and push the button. Would you do it? Because you know what happens to you if you don't do it? They'll just push you in the room and somebody else will push the button. Right? Would you do it? You'd be tempted to do it. What would you say to yourself, maybe? I don't have a choice. They made me do it. If I didn't do it, somebody else would do it. I'm just trying to survive. And you know what? In that moment, if we did it and we stood before God, would we have any excuse? Would you? Would you have an excuse? Because what would he say? You say, but God, if I didn't do that, they would have killed me. And God would have said, so you wanted life and comfort more than you wanted to please me? And what would we say? You're right, I have no excuse. So we get to this low moment. Have you seen your heart like this before? Have you seen your heart like this before? It's, it's a sober text. You know what? I, I'm intimidated preaching texts like this because if I saw it the way I should see it, I would start crying right now. We'd all be in here crying. If we saw it the way we should see it. And you're like, I just wanted to come to church, man. Why are you messing with me like this? Right? Why are you doing this to me? But that's what, this is what, because God wants to bring us to restoration, sin and evil and wickedness and selfishness is real, and it doesn't go away with a, oh, it's okay. Repentance is the way to healing. And so as we reach the bottom of this text of just, Darkness, you know, verses five and six. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. David saying, This is not just a one time thing for me. I'm inclined to this all the time to deny you and to be selfish. Here's where things change. Verse seven Purge me with hyssop, I shall be clean. Wash me, I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you broke and rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. He's asking for a new heart, a new relationship. Forgive me, God. Make me right with you again, God. I want to be different. Look at that prayer in verse 10. What does he want? Create in me a what? A clean heart to where I love you. More than anything else, renew a right spirit. Help me want to obey you. Change me, God. And you know what? When you pray this and you mean it, you're already being changed. You're already being changed. Imagine if the first time he saw Bathsheba, he went, create in me a clean heart, O oh God, and renew a right spirit within me. Imagine what would have happened. Nothing. He'd have gone back to work. We'd never have the story. He wouldn't have done it. He's being changed. He's submitting to the Lord. He's he's, uh, relying on God's restoration, his forgiveness. Already he's being changed. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your spirit within me. I think here he's thinking of King Saul. Remember, the spirit anointed Saul to be king, and then Saul did evil things, and, and God said with Saul, you know, because Saul never repented, he never confessed like this. God said with Saul, I'm done with you. David says, don't let me be like that. Keep hitting my heart when I rebel against you. Look at verse 12. Restore to me the what? The joy of your salvation. It's really, I think, the the heart of the psalm. What is joy? It's, It's a delight and satisfaction in who God is. And what is the antidote to sin and injustice towards other people? You guys, why do we do injustice to other people? We're looking for a satisfaction or a a salvation or a joy. And what if we could find that in God? What if we could find it in him? Would that change how we interact with others? Restore to me the joy of my salvation and renew a right spirit in me. And so now you see restoration beginning, restoration beginning. Look what he says in verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. God, when you heal me, when you forgive me, when you reconcile me, when you bring me back, and I grow in healing there, and I'm set right, and I'm experiencing your peace and your forgiveness, then I can actually take what you've done for me and share it with others so that they can know this God who forgives sinners, who welcomes sinners in. Verse 15, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You don't delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You would not be pleased with a burnt offering. Church, what does God want? Verse 17, in the context of when we sin, what does he want? The sacrifices of God are a what? A broken spirit. Nobody wants to be broken for its own sake. But if your spirit's broken with how you've turned from God in some way and how you've hurt others, and you say, God, I need your mercy. I've got no excuse. Will you restore me? Guess what? God loves. He loves a heart just like that. He sees it. He embraces it. He's committed to it. And what's so amazing is at the end of this psalm, David starts praying for the city. Do you see verse 18? Do good to who? Zion. Why does he need to bring up the capital city in a prayer about his own sin? Did his sin affect other people? How much? How much? much it brought a civil war in the nation ultimately but will his restoration affect the people it will it will bring healing friends does our sin affect other people oh. you ever, have you ever done that thing where you thought well it's just on me it's just me and my thing I'll pay for it it's not about anybody else I'm sorry guys we're connected my sin hurts you your sin hurts me our sin hurts one another but our restoration can heal one another it can do good to one another you know, if you, if you were here last week, we did Psalm 50. Do you remember Psalm 50? And he talked about Zion being the perfection of beauty. The perfection of beauty, God's people, when God's with God's people. Then he confronts them pretty hard on two big sins, right? So here he says, they're beautiful. And he's like, but I got to talk to you about some ugliness. It's so amazing that as Psalm 50 and Psalm 51 go back and forth, we see that with the, the problems of Psalm 50, it's the repentance of Psalm 51 that gets Zion back to where it needs to be. This is what heals us. I'm going to do two applications now. Number one. Did any of you, as you read this, wonder how God can just forgive sin like this? Let's pretend like you're Uriah's mom. You want to be Uriah's mom for a moment? And you're right there with Nathan. You're right, cheering him on, right? Bring it. You are the man. Say it again, Nathan. You are the man. You're Uriah's mom. And then what do you want Nathan to bring on David right after that? Okay, we're going to execute you nine different ways. Okay, we're going to throw you to the Ammonites. And watch what they do, because you deserve that. Would she be wrong? And Nathan says to David, after David says, I've sinned, Nathan said to David, God forgives you. How do you feel, your eyes, Mom? Hold up. Holy God hates wicked. You're going to look at that mess and say, I forgive you? No. You know, God wears this all through the Old Testament. He wears this. How can you be holy and forgive people like this? Abraham pimped out his own wife. Jacob was a crook. You want to go on and on? How do you forgive people like this? How do you say you're holy and then just be like, no big deal? You've got to read this psalm. Right next to Jesus. Here's how God fixes his reputation, if you will. Look at Romans 3, 23. Romans 3, 23. For all have what? All fall short of the glory of God. We've all denied God, not liked him, not wanted him. We've all sinned and fall short of the the glory of God. Verse 24. And are justified by his grace as a gift. Justified is to be made right with God, considered innocent. By his grace, that's undeserved love, that's steadfast love. As a gift, it's free. He'll make you right with him for free, even though you haven't been in what you've done. Wow. How does it work? Through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. I just got braces last week. It's hard for me to say. (laughs) Propitiation. Okay, you all want to try it on just for fun, stay awake? Go ahead, try to say it. Propitiation. We don't want to get rid of it because it means a substitutionary atonement. It means there was a trade that took place. It means that Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life, gave you his perfection, his clothing to wear, and he took from you your sin. And so if we were to look up in God and be like, how can you forgive David all through the Old Testament? God be saying, just wait a minute. I'll show you. Just wait a minute. And then when Jesus Christ dies on the cross, this is God saying, this is How? Look at Romans 3, 25 again. This, what? The cross was to show God's, what? Righteousness. God is saying, on the cross, I want to show you how I have never once swept a sin under the rug. How I will never be like, no big deal to any sin. No, every, I'm just, every sin's going to get what it deserves, but there's a substitute who will pay the price for you. How did God forgive David? Because David's son would pay for his father's sin. Jesus got treated like a murderer and an adulterer and a liar and a betrayer and a hater on the cross. For David and for who else for me (laughs) for you for everybody who trusts in him so that God can look at me and you even though we've done horrid things and thought horrid things and said horrid things and say but you're right with me you're forgiven isn't that beautiful and Paul has David, or excuse me, yeah, the Apostle Paul has David in his mind as he's writing this, because look at what Paul says in Romans 4, 6. David also speaks of the blessing of the one whom God counts righteous apart from works. And what does David say? Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. And anybody who's honest with their own heart and life goes, Amen. Amen. Onto my heart and onto yours. It's not to make you feel bad about yourself. It's not to make you hate yourself. It's to have us all see what's really there and run to Jesus. Run to Jesus. And see, truly see what he did for you on the cross. Because when you see what the, the simultaneous reality of what you deserve and how loved you are, that's what kicks in the prayer, created me a clean heart. You've loved me so much. you. I want to be like you. You're beautiful to me. Help me turn from my rebellion. Help me run to you. Read the psalm with Jesus. One last application. This psalm is meant for any and every sin any of God's people have or ever will commit. Amen? All of them. It's meant for abortion as well. It's meant for abortion as well. You know, a lot of times on Sanctity of Life Sunday or when I talk about this, I spend a majority of my time trying to argue from common ground about how abortion is actually Um, A sin How it harms our neighbor Who deserves our love and compassion I'm not going to do that at all today I'm just going to take that for granted That that you know that in your mind or your heart If you're curious to have that conversation If you're not sold on that I would love to have that conversation with you One line stood out to me this week In that regard And it was a sentence from an ex-abortionist Dr. Anthony Levitino. he was talking about why he quit and here's what he said i began to feel like a paid assassin and at some point the money was no longer worth it it tells you what he knows about what he was doing what if we come back to psalm 51 in the light of jesus christ with his issue isn't it a community confession for us isn't it everybody holding hands in a way, right? Whose life isn't touched by this in one way or another? With somebody we know and love. Whose, whose past doesn't have something in it? Whose community isn't touched by it? It's a, it's a confession we all come to together. We all hold hands on. And we, we dare say in our hearts, have mercy on us, O God, according to your steadfast love. Have mercy on a community that promotes this as liberation, that builds big business on preying on children, women and the poor. Have mercy on us for men who don't take responsibility for what they've done before and after a child is conceived. Have mercy on us when we think of and speak of about people who are yet to be born like we used to speak of slaves. Like we think of them as less than human and treat them worse. We come to the psalm with an honest confession and we say, Against you and you only, God, have I sinned. When I despise others, I despise your word, I despise you. And as we come with a broken heart, what does God do with us? He forgives. He forgives. He welcomes, he loves, and I hope that he heals, that he heals. Can you believe that Jesus died for that? Did he die for that, for all who trust in him? He did. He did. Can he wash us whiter than snow? He can, and he does. So what should we do? What should we do? One word stands out to me here is the word share. What did David do with his experience for us? Psalm 51. He shared it. What did he do with the reality of his hurt and his guilt and his sense of dirtiness? He shared it. What did he do with the, the news and the message of God's grace and his love and his compassion? He shared it. And then what does he say even at the end of the psalm? Then I will teach transgressors your way, and sinners will come to you. I'll share the news of a God like this who is so gracious and merciful. So I just want to land on that word as we close. If you need help, share it. Share it. We want to help. We want to love. We want to listen. Share it. If you need an abortion recovery group at Horizon, go share it. If you have found healing and restoration in Jesus, share it. We heard Deborah invite us to go volunteer, support Horizon, or even to support them financially. If you found it and you want others to find it in this issue specifically, share it. The truth, love your neighbor, share it, talk about what's true, stand for life somehow, and do it with the heart of somebody who's already walked down the street of Psalm 51. You have know somebody try to share the good news with you when you're like, You've never read Psalm 51, <laughs> right? They come at you, You know what I'm talking about. They've never actually been humbled and repented themselves and they come out to you with like machine guns. We don't want to share it like that. I had a professor who used to say we should preach with a limp. You know what he meant? And don't preach Psalm fifty one at somebody yet until you've walked down the street. Until you have said about yourself with honesty, Have mercy on me, O God. Because then when you know his restoration and Christ to be restored, you know what it's like to talk to somebody who's broken. And you know how to be, you know, it's that old, that old phrase, you know how to be like one beggar telling another beggar where the bread is. You know how to take somebody to Jesus. Church, may we be a people that doesn't excuse our sin, doesn't rationalize it, Doesn't give lame apologies to others or to God. But says to the Lord, I need your mercy. I've got no excuse. And then we embrace full on everything Jesus is for us. You're forgiven in Christ. You are righteous in Christ. You're adopted in Christ. You are loved in Christ. You are washed in Christ, whiter than snow. Let's enjoy it. Let's share it. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, hard message for us. Can only pray I did it okay, Lord. I pray that whatever work you want to do in anybody's heart today, that you would do it. Lord, heal us where we're hurting. Confront us, God, where we are planning on sinning against you. And sinning against others, and Lord, we pray today, like David did, that you would create in us a clean heart, and renew in us a willing spirit. Restore to us, God, the joy of our salvation, that you have paid for our sins completely and in full. We are forgiven, and we are loved. Pray this in Jesus' name. Everybody said, Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening, and we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.